Let us pray together. Lord, as we take some time this morning to be in your word, to look at the words of Psalm 73, I pray that you would speak to us. Come and comfort your people, we pray. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, comfort us with your presence. And bring us, Lord, by the end of this sermon to the place where we can say, Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth? There is nothing that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I'm going to take a few moments. It's one of my favorite psalms. I'm going to read it. Jennifer did a great job and I was able to follow most of it. But for those who couldn't, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, for I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In the arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one wakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. So we start here in Psalm 73. Actually, part of the inspired word of God includes the words, which is the subtitle of the passage here, a psalm of Asaph. So I want to take a few moments by way of introduction to talk a little bit about Asaph. We come in Psalm 73 to the third book of the Psalms, which is, one of the shorter books, subsections of the Psalms, and is certainly a darker section of the Psalms, a section of the Psalms which has more of the laments uh, recorded than probably any other section, particularly when you compare it to the, what's called the Hallelujah section at the end of the Psalms. 
Most of the Psalms in this section has been written by Asaph or perhaps by some of his descendants, 11 out of the 16. Asaph was a member of the Levites appointed by royal decree by David and then appointed from among the Levites as a musician. It is mentioned that he played the bronze cymbals and he and his families were singers too. We see that in Chronicles. He was a lead worshipper and he was a lead worshipper at pinnacle points in the history of Israel. He was there when the Ark of the Covenant under the leadership of King David was returned in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. He was part of the musicians that was appointed for the procession. And he was appointed thereafter by David, King David, to praise and minister before the Lord in song and to minister before the Ark of the Covenant regularly. Asaph and his family were set apart for the ministry of prophecy to the sound of music, to the sound of harps and lyres and cymbals. He was also the head of a multi-generational family of worship leaders who were trained and skilled in worship and part of the Levites. Asaph's uh, high points extended beyond the reign of King David too. Asaph witnessed and participated in one of the highest points in Israel's history when the ark enters the temple that the Lord constructed under Solomon's reign. Just imagine this in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. The priests then withdrew from the holy place, all the priests who had consecrated themselves regardless of their division. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, the one we're talking about, Heman, who was the grandson of Samuel, and Jeduthan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen, playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison and gave thanks and praise to God. Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voice in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. And this, imagine this happening. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Imagine being that worship leader. You've planned your worship service. You start leading worship and then God turns up and disrupts your order of service. He was there. This was the guy, right? He was there on that day when God interrupted the worship service and took over. Furthermore, it was Asaph's sons who were there at the foundation of the second temple that was built during the time of Hezekiah. He's referred to as a seer or a prophet. And along with David composed uh, the canon of worship that was readopted at the purification of the temple in the time of Hezekiah. And later on in Israel's history, when Nehemiah was dedicating the wall of, the, of Jerusalem, two choirs were assigned with the descendants of Asa 500 years later, seven or eight generations later. And within those generations, I actually found out there was a person called Jonathan. <laughs> Read Nehemiah chapter 11 or 12. <laughs> and actually, it was interesting, in Nehemiah chapter 12, It talks about how Nehemiah wants to reinstate the pattern as if in the good old days of David and Asaph. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, in those good old days, there had been directors for the music and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. We see that Asaph um, expresses a wide expression and experience of God who could bring forth both these words that we all love, whom have I in heaven? 
but you, the mountaintop experience. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And also, deep in the valley and, the, and words of lament, will God reject us forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forget, forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? We see that this section of the psalm has more laments than any other section of the psalm. And now we come to what I think is one of the most well-known of Asaph's psalms. And so let's jump in at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What I think is happening in this passage, based on the, the, the changes of the tense and how things start off, is not that um, the psalmist starts in the valley. He doesn't start saying, yeah, sure, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's starting at the end. He's already at the mountain peak. Surely, he's saying this with, uh, with uh, conviction. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Keep this in mind because we'll see where the psalm is headed now. And the tense changes. And now what we see Asaph doing is that he's retrospectively recording his erroneous point of view. Here is a leading worshipper, kind of a Jedi level worshipper, enunciating his laments. And I would like to point out that there is an importance in expressing our laments towards God. Even part and package of it is the wrong-footedness of his point of view, his wrong point of view, which we'll get to. But we see that there's a great disparity between both the fact God is good to Israel, and then we see, jumping into verse 2, but as for me, this juxtaposition, this jarring contrast, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. We know where we're going. We're going to that mountain peak, but let's see where we are. The imagery is of climbing or walking on difficult terrain and starting to feel the feet slipping. It's kind of like when you're driving here in the winter and you hear that buzzing sound of the anti-skid. You know, so you're, you're kind of, you're getting worried. You know, you're not, the car isn't skidding yet, but it's making that kind of sound, which you're getting a bit concerned about. Here, the warning signs are being raised in his spirit. And what was the thing that caused him to slip and almost lose his foothold? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I think he starts off pretty well in his lament, actually. There's a huge amount of honesty that he's willing to bear here. I did envy the arrogant. He's willing to own that. Here, you know, chief musician and one of the, you know, the top three worship leaders in Israel. And what was he envious of? The prosperity. We'll see in the next verse it talks about how healthy they are and how they don't have any struggles. When we get down to verse 12, how they have riches. If there had been a bit more consequences for their unfaithfulness to God, maybe things would have seemed a little bit more tolerable to him. But when he saw their prosperity, he envied them. They have no, verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. We start to get hints of how selective his viewpoint is. They have no struggles. This is certainly not true. There's so much credence nowadays given to, I'm speaking my truth. Right? And here, even as he expresses his lament to God, we see it's starting to be wrong-footed. 
But also at the same time we realize that he's crafted these words which are expressed to God. What has occasioned him to struggle so much? Surely Asaph was present during the golden years and the golden part of the kingdom of Israel. To be honest, I couldn't figure out what he was because I think that Asaph was too old to have been alive when the uh, kingdom actually ended up splitting. Perhaps indications of the the decay that was setting in during the the reign of of Solomon. But as we can see in this uh, particular verse, maybe indications that he was viewing the health and the strength that they have in contrast to the lack of health and strength that he has. But this is speculative. Verse 5. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. We can see that his language is increasingly becoming more hyperbolic, isn't it? And what is the implication? The common human burdens actually end up being reserved for the faithful. The indication of... The indication of this suffering is that they are protected from it. We are not free. We are plagued. Is there even perhaps a hint of a veiled accusation against God? They are the recipients of God's favor and we are not. And we start to see his descent from his honesty and his honest part of his lament to how more and more erroneous his views become. Asaph intimates, as John Calvin has said, that the wicked somehow have some special privilege which exempts them from the miseries to which mankind is generally subject. It is indeed a sore temptation, John Calvin continues, to behold the despisers of God indulging themselves in their luxurious pleasures and enjoying great ease as if they were elevated above the rest of the world into a region of pleasure where they had a nest for themselves apart. And therefore, because heaven seems to have been complicit in this, therefore, verse 6, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Therefore, because they've got this free pass from heaven, they are adorned with pride. There is no question about their, their wickedness. Again, the hint again here is that there's complicity from heaven in the pride of the wicked. And the exemption grants them the audacity in their disobedience. From their callous hearts, verse 7, comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Here we see a composite showing how wicked they are both, that they are, rest- they are restricted, their callousness, their hardness of heart leads them to iniquity. And the freedom that they have too also leads them to iniquity too. Their evil imagination knows no limits. It's both the constraint and the freedom that they have all works itself towards wickedness, not towards righteousness. And how is this expressed? Verse 8, they scoff, they speak with malice, with arrogance they threaten oppression. In other versions, it speaks of them speaking loftily, It speaks of their self-elevation and how exalted they are in their own eyes, inflated and overflowing with arrogance, scoffing and speaking malice. Not only do they do this, but they lay claims to heaven. In other translations, it says that they set their mouth against heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. In other translations, it says their tongues walk through the whole earth. 
They spread their testimonies abroad. And what is the result of all of this? Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. The picture here is that their testimony is like a liquid which the people then go and they drink it and they imbibe it and it becomes part of them and it, it, it steers them in the wrong direction. Not only do they sin, and this is the lament of, the man, uh, of, of Asaph as he sees the wicked, not only are they sinful on their own, they lead people astray. So people drink up their testimonies, they read their books, they follow their advice, and they friend them on Facebook and follow them on Twitter. Well, they would have if they had that back then. Verse 11, they say, how would God know? Not only do their mouths lay claim together, they scoff, they speak with malice, they start to speak against God. How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? We're not sure here if the they, the antecedent of the they, is the wicked people who have taken in the testimony of the wicked. But I would be more, um, I, I would be, believe that the they refers more to the wicked people because we see as the verses are stepping through how the level of their wickedness is increasing and increasing. It seems to be that the wickedness of the that's talked here is of the wicked people. They see themselves. They see that God's inaction. And they scoff against it. Not only do they question God's omniscience, then they go to mocking God. Does God know anything at all? They mock God. This is what the wicked are like. Despite their affront to God, despite mocking Him, they're always free of care. And they go on amassing wealth. There's no twinge of guilt here. The indication, And we have indications here of what the psalmist is sore about. Free of care and amassing wealth. It is perhaps not a flattering picture into where the psalmist's heart is. But at least he's, a, he's willing to lay it bare and lay it bare before the Lord. Yes, Lord, I do struggle that they are free of care. I do struggle that they go on blaspheming against you and yet they amass wealth. And here we see where this leads him. Surely in vain I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. Why did I bother, Lord? All this purity and righteousness, it's worthless finally. What was the purpose of keeping my heart pure? What have I got to show for it? The indication here is that he's weak in his body, not having full strength and poor compared to these wicked people. In reality, there's the unfairness of non-believers prospering. Not just non-believers, but very wicked people prospering. Now the fact is, is that when we go through suffering, our sense of the disparity and the unfairness of things is very vague. But here we see the psalmist, after having gone to the height, he's willing to go back and put his words clearly and articulate them clearly. So it moves from being a vague sense of the unfairness of things to clarifying how wrong his position was. There's a strong contrast with what the, the, the psalmist has been ex experiencing compared to the wicked. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. I am afflicted continually. They are free of care and amassing wealth. This may indicate the affliction of the heart 
that an unsettled heart for those who are Christians, for those when Christ is no longer the treasure of their heart, the unsettledness and the affliction of soul that starts to set in. And for any of you who have been Christians for a while, when God ceases to be your primary and your central treasure, the, the, the unease that grows in your heart is very palpable. It may be that. It may be that he's actually suffering. And it's made worse by the contrast that it seems that God is favoring the wicked and not him, the righteous. It may be that God is actually punishing him, but I don't think that's where the, that's the indication of the text. But it does clarify the contrast. Why are the wicked seemingly blessed and the faithful punished? There's certainly, it's not just what he's going through. It's also, Lord, how do I make sense of this massive incongruity, this massive spiritual dissonance, the suffering of the faithful and the simultaneous prospering of the wicked, the favor for the wicked and the affliction for the faithful. Verse 15, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. So he has this kind of editorial retrospective comment, is that if I had fully taken their point of view and joined with them, I would have betrayed your children. I would have spoken wrongly about you. I remained and I didn't finally rail against you, Lord. I stayed on your side and yet even when I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. However, when I tried to understand this, I tried to make sense of this, I mulled over it. It, problem, it troubled me deeply. The injustice of it all. If God is indeed just, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Now I would like to take a moment here to pause because I think often at this point in this text or this type of point people are too swift to jump into verse 17 let us see the value of unburdening the soul before the Lord we see that Asaph after having gone through he takes time not just to write down vague phrases but to craft a poem in couplet form to remember carefully and to embody what he was thinking at the time. Not only that it would be remembered and recorded, maybe he didn't realize at the time that it would be recorded in perpetuity, but this would be something that was sang publicly. Here a master worship leader wants to take, his, take the people and craft what his lament was before the Lord. And what I've found is, is that part of the appeal of this psalm is that when I'm going through difficult times and these types of struggles are real in my life, is that how he enunciates this. As wrong as it is, it helps me to relate. It helps me to enunciate my words and embody my words and bring thoughts before the Lord as wrong as they are. We see words here which are not flattering to Asaph at all. And yet we see as we, go, as we will go forward, God constantly, graciously de deals with us despite our faulty and limited vantage point. We see the spiritual dissonance verbalized with all of the baggage that it carries. I found that at times these words, there's a huge sense of resonance that I can... I feel, okay, 
there's something in the Bible that actually I can relate to when I'm struggling through this. And then it's through that that it takes me to whom have I in heaven but you. Here we see a renowned psalmist that sees the value in clarifying what maybe was vague as he lived through it, but gives vocabulary to the people of Israel to express their lament to the Lord. We, I mentioned in passing, we see here already in this section of the psalm the inadequacy of the vantage point which is talked to about here. We remember that Asaph was the person who had these great mountaintop experiences. And speaking about inadequacy of vantage point, it's been brought into focus again as we've been trying to train our youngest child doing sleep training. And the way he cries as if we've abandoned him when we put him in his crib. It's okay in the night time, but in the daytime when he looks at me with these accusatory looks like, you're abandoning me. He has an inadequacy of his vantage point. right? And so do we. And yet we have a God whose shoulders are broad enough to bear our laments. This certainly highlights our need of God. Let us also be careful that we don't have a false view of maturity where we constantly have to pretend that everything is okay. That there's never times when we struggle. Always trusting and never struggling. It was funny actually because as I was going through this I feel sometimes instead of doing Psalm 73 we're too quick to do Psalm 37 which is like two verses of condolence and then trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy the safe parts. Take, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the, delight, the desires of your heart. Sometimes we're so swift to instruct people and to give them this idea that maturity involves trusting God and not enunciating any of their lament to the Lord. That they don't actually deal with the burdens of their heart. They're just buried to be unearthed at a later point. So I would encourage you, if you are struggling, unburden yourself before the Lord. It is okay to do that. Remember that you are justified by Christ and Christ alone so that you can come to God with your weakness and your nothingness and say, Lord, here is even my faulty, weak lament. I have envied the wicked, Lord. Our God can deal with this. It makes me wonder sometimes, is our vocabulary towards God so limited when our prayers and our worship only have a fraction of what is expressed in the breath of the Psalms? How many Christians, I wonder, have unresolved laments, faulty as they were, but because they were buried too quickly, because someone was too swift to say, trust and delight yourself in the Lord. Come, unburden yourself before the Lord. It is before God the lament is laid out. Having been troubled deeply, he says, I was troubled deeply till I entered the sanctuary of, the God, uh, uh, sanctuary of God. And this is surely the turning point in the Psalms. But a last point here. This is precisely the moment which he probably did not want to go into the sanctuary of the Lord, isn't it? Right? It's like, yeah, this is the, this is the point at which it turns. But this is the point which he, he probably didn't want to do. And I wonder even if it might have been his leadership role that forced him to be present. You know, John Calvin says, David very properly puts entering into the sanctuaries 
as if coming into the school of, the, uh, of God. As if it is a way of meaning, until God becomes my schoolmaster and until I learn by his word what otherwise my mind, when I come to consider the government of the world, cannot comprehend, I stop short all at once and understand nothing about the subject. When therefore we are here told that men are unfit for contemplating the arrangements of divine providence until they obtain wisdom elsewhere than from themselves, how can we attain wisdom but by submissively receiving what God teaches us by his word and by his Holy Spirit? David, by the word sanctuary, alludes to the external nature of the teaching which God has appointed to illumine his ancient people, but also that by the word he comprehends a secret illumination of the Holy Spirit. What is all this to say? The entering into sanctuary is an indication both of the external source of the revelation that helps him to comprehend what is going on, and also the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Then I understood their final destiny. The timeline has changed from the here and now to the final destiny, the final location of their trajectory. Verse 18, Surely you place them on slippery ground. They are cast, you cast them down to ruin. In contrast to his idea that heaven was complicit, he starts to realize that their seemingly blessed state is in fact the opposite of what it seemed. When he was saying, my feet already almost stumbled, he starts to realize it is the wicked who are on the slippery ground. Their feet are precariously on slippery ground. Not only do they fall under their, will they likely fall under their own weight on this slippery ground, they are cast down by the Lord. And this is terrifying imagery if we are willing to pause and think about it. To be cast down by the Lord. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Their self-assuredness, their pride, their callous hearts and unbounded evil imagination does not continue unchecked as he had believed initially under the duress of suffering. Their scoffing words against the Most High will suddenly be cut short. They are like a, dr a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. This is kind of an, uh, an unusual simile. They are like a dream. It's not, it sounds positive. They are like the vague memory that fades away after you wake up from a dream. Again, if we would pause, a terrifying image of the wicked, almost as if they are forgotten out of the mind of the Lord, despised by him as a vague memory. Here is the truth about the wicked that we've just done in the last few, uh, few verses. And here's the truth about me, the psalmist. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Here we see confession and included now on the public record and recorded for all of history. A worship leader of great caliber who could have been puffed up with pride who recalls his nothingness before the Lord. I don't bring my piety. I bring my faulty and broken lament before you, Lord. And when I look back on how I was thinking, I see how senseless I was and ignorant I was. What a brute beast I was before you. But surely someone would say, oh, the fact that you are having these kind of insights, isn't it an, an indication that you are so spiritually sensitive? No, I was senseless. Oh, but didn't you, your understanding of what was going on, didn't it show how much insight you have? And yet when you came into the uh, sanctuary of the Lord, it was, I was senseless. 
I was a brute beast before you. What a, what a, what a, what a words to say. Kind of reminds you of Nebuchadnezzar going mad and being, behaving like an animal. Maybe some of you who have young children say, you know, don't, don't behave like an animal. You know, I was like a brute beast. What is it? This idea, you don't have any cognitive uh, capability, right? You just, yeah, ability to have some strength and that's about it. I was a brute beast. I'm thinking. It is certainly contrary to his original way of thinking. <clears throat> his original way of thinking, what was it? The wicked received unmerited favor and the righteous suffer. You can see actually that his whole viewpoint changes. He starts to re- realize the wicked receive justice. And what is it? Is it that the righteous receive favor from God? It is actually that the unrighteous receive grace. The brute beast receives grace. We notice that the tense now changes. Yet this brute priest, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. Doesn't this speak of the amazing grace of our God? That in fact, God was in proximity. God was there. God was not absent. God was present. They are placed on slippery ground. But I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. They are cast down. There's no, more, there's no indication here whether he is on the slippery ground or not. Yet he has the presence of God. God does not necessarily change the situation he's in. But God is with him and he realizes it. They are cast away. God is always with us. It is actually the opposite of what he thought to be true. It reminds me a little bit of Psalm 63. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. It reminds me of, again, of the, the, the picture of uh, sleep training the child. When you finally pick up the child and he clings to you. But what is the determining factor of this child not falling? It's the parent holding the child, isn't it? What an amazing comfort it is that when we go through hardship, you hold me by your right hand. Be comforted, people of God. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. John Calvin says, Accordingly, after having acknowledged his own infirmities, he celebrated the grace of God, the aid and the comfort from, uh, of which he had experienced. And now he cherishes the hope that the divine assistance will continue hereafter to extend to him. You see the contrast again. I discern their final destination. They will be cast down. You will take me to glory. You will despise them as phantoms. You guide me with your counsel. And then we come to this great verse which so many of us know, a rhetorical question. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's what I would call the Old Testament equivalent of I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And yet the what I've found in my own experience is that the lesson of this verse is learned more deeply via the trials and the testing, isn't it? It is after the difficulties and the trials that the sufficiency of God and the preciousness of God, when it dawns, it is held ever more closely and treasured. A little bit more of John Calvin. We, we will seek nothing from God but what we are conscious of wanting in ourselves. Indeed, all men confess this, and the greater part think that which it, 
think that which is necessary of God is that God should aid our infirmities or afford us help when we have not the means of adequately relieving ourselves. But the confession of Asaph is far more encompassing than this when he lays, so to speak, his nothingness before God. He therefore speaks very properly and adds that God is his portion. The portion of an individual is, the, is a figurative expression employed in scripture to denote the condition or lot with which every man is contented. Maybe a phrase that we've used more frequently in our day is that you are my all in all. And it is yet the sore trial that brings to the foreground our spiritual poverty and our total need of God. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My standing is dependent on God. There's a doctrine which is called the perseverance of, uh, of the saints. We will persevere all the way to eternal life because our salvation and our standing rests on God and God alone. But God is the strength of my heart. I may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. All I contribute in my relationship with God is my need. I bring my weakness. And if we take the context of this psalm, all I bring is my need, my weakness, my envy of the wicked, my faulty vantage point, my brutish beastliness, and my weakness before God. Yet God, he is all sufficient. Yet he holds me. Yet he draws me back to a place where my heart can rejoice once again in God as my all in all. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to, me, to you. But as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Here we see the second, but as for me. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Here we see the, again the contrast between those who are near and those who are far. The proximity, those who have, you are my refuge, versus them, they will be destroyed. The destruction versus the refuge. They will be destroyed and I will be kept so that I can testify about your greatness. I will tell of your deeds. In the midst of suffering, the dissonance of the wicked prospering and the righteous not, yet finally we come to this place. God's nearest and his presence can be enough. There's a slogan from the Ministry of Desiring God Ministries by John Piper, which is God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And actually there's an additional phrase to this, which is God is most glorified when we are satisfied with him in the midst of suffering. And what I would like to tell as we, as we have gone through this passage is that God can be trusted. God is faithful in the midst of suffering. I will tell of your deeds. God himself who is a refuge from God. None of the externals have probably changed, yet now... With God as his refuge, he will be a witness to the faithfulness of God. The answer in the Old Testament of the question of suffering was always to look forward to a coming judgment. Yes, as Christians on the other side of the cross, we have an additional vantage point, don't we? That we look backwards to the completed work of Christ. Now we have to realize that it is not just totally in the future which their judgment takes place. If we look at the tents in the psalm, they are currently in a precarious place. They are utterly consumed. They are currently consumed with terrors. And if the ultimate gift is God himself, they, despite all outward appearances, 
are currently under the judgment of God. So conversely, the the author, without his physical and material prosperity, he remains under God's favor because he can have God's nearness and ultimately having God's presence and God's favor is adequate. And where do we see this disparity between the appearance and the reality taking place most clearly? Had we taken a snapshot of that most crucial moment when Christ hung on the cross, we too would have almost slipped and stumbled seeing the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. John Stott, in his great book, The Cross of Christ, he says, Any contemporary observer who saw Christ die would have listened with astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. Had he not been rejected by his own nation, uh, betrayed, denied, deserted by his own disciples, and executed by the authority of the Roman procurator, Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung with nails, strung up with nails or ropes or both, and pinned there and powerless. It appears to be the total defeat. If there is victory, it is the victory of pride and prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcoming, overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he himself was crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. And I would add to that, seemingly abandoned by God. There is God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we see the disparity that can uh, can live between the appearance and the reality. So take heart in closing. Lay your laments before the Lord and be assured that God is with you. Take every effort to be in the house of the Lord and expose yourself to the external revelation and the work of the Spirit that will draw you once again to Him. Trust in the Lord, our Savior and our God, who is faithful to draw you out of the darkness and who is there to be with you in the darkness. And may the Holy Spirit work in your life today and convince you once again of God's supreme worth. That your hearts, having despaired once, will join with the words of the psalmist and say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord. How the reality of what we live is laid bare. And yet, Lord, we see that there can be such a disparity between the appearance of the world, Lord, and the truth as you know it and as you see it. Help us, therefore, Lord, as we go through struggles to lay our laments honestly before you, knowing that we are justified by your perfection and not ours. Help us to not hide behind this false idea of maturity, Lord, where we need to pretend that everything is okay. Thank you, Lord, that you draw us to yourself. Thank you that you have spoken externally to us through your spirit, Lord, to draw us once again to realize the position of the wicked and the grace that we have received, Lord, from your hand. 
Draw us once again, Lord, to places where we too can say, Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? To realize that you, Lord, are the gift that you give. We pray all these things, Lord, that you would strengthen your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.